We're going to open with a word of prayer, but before we do, this is where we're at in our schedule. You can see today we're going to continue in and finish chapter 10 of Romans. So let's go ahead and pray and ask God's blessing upon uh, our morning. Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning. You are worthy the fact that we can say that our Father is the King, is uh, the one true God, that the Lord is our Shepherd, and we are grateful for the relationship that we have with you by your grace through Jesus Christ. Thank you for his willingness. Thank you, Jesus, for your willingness to take on human flesh, to become our representative in life and to fulfill God's law for us, and then to be our substitute in death and pay the penalty for our sins, and all out of uh, great love with which you loved us, though we were sinners. And uh, we thank you for the resurrection of Christ, even as we anticipate Easter coming up in the relatively near future, and that he is alive, he's conquered, conquered the grave for us, given us the hope of heaven and life and fellowship with you. Lord, we praise you for all of these realities, and we thank you for the time that we have every Lord's Day to gather together for corporate worship. What an encouragement, what a privilege, what a a means by which you graciously work in our lives to build us up in our faith. We pray that you, even today, would draw near to us, in our, in our various um, situations in life, you who know the heart, and that you would minister to us according to your wisdom and goodness, and that you would even start in this class, use this text from Romans to minister uh, comfort and, and uh, wisdom and encouragement and instruction to us. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Okay, let's start just with a little review and preview. Romans 1 through 5 is all about establishing what the gospel is that Paul preaches. And you know that the gospel message as taught in Romans is essentially that unrighteous people can be saved from God's wrath by receiving a gift of righteousness or justification by grace through simple faith in Jesus Christ. And then Romans 6 through 8 is saying that in addition, everyone who receives that gift of justification also receives new spiritual life so that they now live a life of obedience to God and also the hope of resurrection and the indwelling Holy Spirit and the new creation. And so Romans 6 through 8 is sort of going through those themes. And then as we come to chapter 9, you know that there's this huge hinge in the book where in chapter 9, he, he starts addressing uh, a difficult matter. That is, why do so many of his fellow Jews not believe in the gospel, haven't received this salvation that he's been talking about? And this is important not only because of the situation that was going on in the churches in that day, where you had Jew and Gentile within the churches, and they were trying to work out and understand what was happening. You know, there was debates about whether Gentiles had to be 
come circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be in the church. So there was those kinds of issues. But there was also looking back at the Old Testament, you know, has God have God's promise to Israel failed? And so he explains the widespread Jewish unbelief in these verses here, as we're just starting into the section in two ways so far. First, the fact that so many Jews have not believed in Jesus for salvation could be explained uh, from a divine perspective. That's what DP stands for. That God has, al- has always chosen to give salvation to some descendants of Abraham and not others. So you remember his, the way he put it, not all Israel is Israel. And then second, from a human perspective, You could also explain Jewish unbelief because they've refused to be justified by faith because they wanted to be justified by their own works. And so that's where we left off. Now today, as we get into chapter 5, he's obviously going to be following up on this theme where he left off about the, the human perspective that Jews have not been saved because unlike the Gentiles who were willing to receive it as a gift, justification as a gift by faith, the Jews insisted upon being justified by their works, and so they refused to believe. So he is now going to establish this principle that justification is by faith and not by works, contrary to what the Jews were wanting. And he's, he's going to show from the Old Testament itself, which is significant, obviously, because that is the Jewish scriptures, right? That justification is by faith and not by works. And number two, he's going to show that Israel has not been justified because they refuse to believe the gospel when it was preached to them, whereas so many Gentiles have. So again, we've made this big shift from chapter 9 focused on the divine perspective, sovereign election, and God's choice of some and not others is the ultimate reason why so many Jews have not believed. But now he's switched to talking about the human perspective. Why have the Jews not been saved? Because they refused to believe the gospel when it was preached to them. So that's where we're headed. We're going to start here in Romans 10, 5 through 8. So if someone would just begin by reading these verses, if someone would be willing to do that, we'll have them up on the screen. You can follow along there, or you could read from your copy of the scripture. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the command shall live by them. But the righteous, based on the faith, on faith, says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. All right. Thank you, Katrin. A summary here. What's Paul doing in these verses? Well, I think in some, he's further establishing his point from verse 4. Where it, You remember when we got to the end of the previous section, he said, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to those who believe. And here he's, you know, you see the word for there. He's giving more reasons why that is the case. Why is Christ the end of the law for righteousness to those who believe? So that now that Christ has come, salvation is through, righteousness comes through him, through faith in him, not by the old covenant law. So he's further establishing that point by showing 
from the law itself, the contrast between the righteousness that's based on the law, right? You see that phrase here. And the righteousness based on faith. See that here. So he's establishing from the Old Testament scriptures themselves that now that Christ has come, salvation is through faith in him, not righteousness. And salvation and righteousness, right? Those are connected in Romans. I mean, they're connected throughout the Bible. But in Romans particularly, as Paul talks about salvation, he's talking about salvation from the judgment of God that we deserve for our unrighteousness by the justification, the declaring righteous, the righteousness that we receive from God on the basis of faith. So salvation is justification by faith in in this letter. So he's showing that salvation or righteousness comes by faith in Christ, not by the law. And so that's where he's going to, that's what these verses are about. Let's start with that word for, just to establish my point that he's basically giving reasons. Why is Christ the end of the law? And I think they're talking about the old covenant law, right? Not just, not the whole scriptures, not the Ten Commandments only, but the old covenant law. So you could think of the, in Paul's mind, he's, He's living in a time when this great change has happened in history. The period of the old covenant has come to an end, right? And now Christ, and now the new covenant era has begun. And, and what's the signal? What's the thing, the hinge point? The arrival of Christ, the Messiah, right? He has brought the old covenant to an end. Christ is the end of the law. He's fulfilled it and brought it to an end, the old covenant with its law. And he's inaugurated a new covenant. And so when you hear about, when Paul talks about the law, and when in the context he's talking about the old covenant law, think of that paradigm. That's in his mind. He has this understanding that the new covenant has arrived with Christ and the old covenant with its law has been fulfilled and abrogated. So for... This is why Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Here's further reason. And then you get to verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. Okay, now, that little phrase, the person who does the commandment shall live by them, that's essentially a citation of an Old Testament verse, Leviticus 18.5. It's something that you see him cite multiple times in his letter. He cites it in the letter, his letter to the Galatians as well. And his point in citing it is to refer to a principle that was in operation under the Old Covenant, a principle that if you, you, know, you read the Old Covenant law, you see it very clearly over and over and over again, right? God rescues Israel out of Egypt by his grace. He enters into a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. Then he gives them his law. And he says over and over again, you keep this law, you will receive these blessings, right? If you break this law, you will receive these curses. So within the bounds of the old covenant, to be right with God meant keeping the law, 
keeping the old covenant law, the terms of the covenant. If you broke that, the terms of the covenant, you were not right with God and you would receive the judgment curses. Now, I say that because I want to be careful that you do not hear Paul or me saying that somehow you were saved by your works under the old covenant and you're saved by faith under the new, right? Because back in chapter 4 of Romans, he'd made it very clear that, you know, Abraham, for instance, was justified by faith. And it's always been that way. So there were believers, you know, people that were being justified by faith throughout redemptive history. But just within the bounds of the covenant, the old covenant, and the terms of the old covenant, it was very clear. You want these blessings? You have to keep the covenant. You break the covenant, you get these curses. And in that sense, with respect to the covenant, righteousness, that is being in in right standing with God under the old covenant, meant keeping the law. The one who does these things shall live by them, right? And that's In fact, if you turn in your Bibles to Leviticus 18, verse 5, you can see it very clearly. Now, (laughs) Leviticus 18 is the chapter where he lays out all the sexual standards for his people, right? It's one of those chapters that's difficult to read in public or private for that matter. But he says in verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does, does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. You see? It's right there, right? And so what's an example of that? Well, all the rules he was about to lay out regarding sexual conduct. That's just one package. And he, so he's making this point. Okay, under the old covenant era, the righteousness, you know, Moses in the verse says, the one who does them shall live by them, right? He's talking about being in a right standing with God in the terms of the covenant and experiencing the blessings of the covenant. Paul's just saying, look, under the old covenant, to receive life, to be right with God, righteous in that sense, meant that you kept the law. Now, all you have to do is read the history of Israel to realize that was bad news, right? Because that was not possible for them to do. They could not be right with God by keeping the law. Because, and and in that sense, as Paul says in Romans 8, you remember, what the law could not do, being weakened by the flesh, right? Because people had sinful, corrupt, sinful nature. They couldn't keep the old covenant law. And so they couldn't live by keeping the law. They couldn't be right with God by keeping the law because they couldn't keep it. They, They received it on tablets of stone, but their hearts were dead in sin. And so you saw that they received the covenant curses. And so Paul would often reflect upon that old covenant arrangement and say it was deficient. (laughs) And so this is why even within Romans, if you go back to Romans chapter 3, verse 20, he had said, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Right? And also Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, and if you know Galatians, you know that it's very 
similar to Romans in, in the way that he's talking about justification by faith versus justification by works of the law. And he makes these famous statements in Galatians 3 verse 10 and following. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. There's Leviticus 18.5 again, right? He's just saying, that was the principle. Christ redeemed us from that. uh, Because he took the curses in himself. So that the blessings might come to us. But you see, this is the point. It comes up again in uh, Galatians 3 verses 21 and 22 where he says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And then he says, actually what the law was doing was it was like a tutor holding us captive until Christ came, pointing us to Christ, but never being a way that we could be right with God. Now, obviously, we are not Old Covenant Jews. We're not under the Old Covenant. But there's a sense in which the, the principles apply to us as well, because there's a sense in which we have the law of God as well, don't we? <laughs> in our written upon our heart. And the same principles applies to us because we have the same dead hearts, corrupt natures that made it impossible for us to do what God requires. And so his point is that, you know, remember that he's focusing on the Jews here and he's saying under the old covenant, if you were to be right with God, You had to keep the law. And that was bad news because no one can keep the law. The law just simply reveals your sin. And if you try to be right by way of the law, then you're going to be cursed by God because you'd have to do everything in it and you can't. So that's verse 5. He's citing Leviticus 18.5 to establish that the way to be right with God under the old covenant, to receive the blessings of the old covenant, in other words, to live was to keep the commands of the Old Covenant law. That's impossible. But now you get to verse 6, 6 through 8, but, all right, so here's a contrast. In contrast to that Old Covenant arrangement, the way it was under the Old Covenant, but the righteousness based on faith says, and then he cites Deuteronomy 30, 12 through 13. The righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Now I want all of you guys to turn to Deuteronomy 30, that text that he just cited. And I want you to just put your finger there, Deuteronomy 30, verse 11. And we're going to look at that because I know that you probably have some questions there. But you see how I have it highlighted here? That means the next slide. We're going to look at it a little more closely. For now, let's just say this. Paul cites Deuteronomy 30, 12 through 13, to establish that now 
under the new covenant. And you say, well, but this doesn't say anything about the new covenant, right? No, it doesn't. But notice that he talks about Christ. That's the Messiah, right? So he's viewing Deuteronomy 30. As he uses Deuteronomy 30, as he moves from verse 5 to verse 6, he's talking now about Christ. And look down at verse 8. He says, the word of faith that we proclaim. That's the gospel. So there's a contrast between the old covenant arrangement and what is true now that Christ has arrived and we are proclaiming the gospel. So I I think it's appropriate to say that there's a contrast here between the old era of the old covenant and the new era of the new covenant, Christ and the gospel versus the old covenant and the old covenant law. So he cites Deuteronomy 30, 12 through 13 to establish that now under the new covenant, the way to be right with God in this arrangement and to receive the blessings of the new covenant is through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, how Paul is using Deuteronomy 30, 12 through 13, I knew this was coming this week and I told Gerald I'm like, oh, It was going to require me going to my books and spending a significant amount of time because I knew that there's a couple Old Testament citations in this section that are some of the most difficult I've ever come across in all the scriptures to understand what is he doing with these Old Covenant passages here. But he's using Deuteronomy 30, 12 through 13 in a way that's very difficult to understand. And we'll look at that in a second. I think what he's doing is he's probably taking the uh, the principle that is articulated there in Deuteronomy 30 about the old covenant law, and he's taking that principle and he's saying, ah, that principle applies to the new covenant as well. He's applying the principle to the new covenant gospel. So he's taking a principle in Deuteronomy 30 that clearly in the original context applied to the old covenant law, And he's saying that same thing applies to the new covenant. So this is not like one of those times where there's a clear, this passage is fulfilled in the new covenant. The New Testament writers use the old covenant, the old Testament in different ways. And sometimes they use it by way of like an analogy or, oh, the principle there applies here as well. I think that's what is happening here. So he's taking a text that originally was about the old covenant law And he's applying it. He's saying the same thing is true of the new covenant. And what is the principle that he sees? Well, as the law was available for Israel to obey, in other words, in the original context, Moses' point was to say, look, this is not too hard for you to keep. You have it right here. You have the old covenant law. You can keep it. He's saying that principle applies to Christ and the gospel the word of faith that we proclaim, it's available. It's right there. You have access to it and you can believe it. It's not distant. We're proclaiming it. It's in your heart. It's in your mouth. And I think there he's talking about us as Christians. So this is a, this is a very difficult verse. And I want to take more time to look at what is happening here. So let's go to this next slide and then I'll open it for questions. So this is the question. How is Paul using Deuteronomy 30, 12 through 13 in verses 6 to 8 of our text? Now, so this is where go back to Deuteronomy 30 in the Bible, in your your Bible. Look at verses 11 through 
14, because this is, this is the text he cites. For this commandment that I command you today. Okay, now, just stop there and think. Okay, Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy 28 is the blessings and the curses, right? Deuteronomy 29 is basically, you are not going to be able to keep this law, and eventually you're going to go into exile, but God will be merciful to you there. And now we come to Deuteronomy 30. And so when he says, this law that I am, this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. I mean, you know what this is, right? This is the whole book of Deuteronomy is about reiterating the old covenant law to his people. He just given the blessings and the curses. If you obey this law, this is what will happen. If you disobey, this is what will happen. So it's not a mystery here. For this commandment that I command you today, the old covenant law, is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word, and what word is he talking about here in the original context? The commandment, right? The word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. So you can do it. And if you go on to verse 15, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, I will command you today by loving your God, the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments, his statutes, his rules. Then you will live and multiply, and the Lord will God will bless you. So you see, my point is, you go back to that text in the original, it's very clear what he's talking about, right? What is unclear is how Paul is using it here, right? Because notice what he says, the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. What does it say? The word is near you, in your heart, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. So he's somehow looking at that text in Deuteronomy 30 and seeing it as referring to, seeing in it a reference to Christ and the gospel and how it's near us and how as Christians it's in our mouth and it's in our heart. You see that issue there? It's a very, very difficult New Testament use of the old. One of the most difficult. He is bringing it up that, that we have it. It's not like we're being asked to do something that we haven't been given to know what to do. So in the Old Testament, Moses had declared the, the, the things and said, okay, now you know. Now you're knowledgeable. So you are therefore capable of doing it because you've been informed. And now he's bringing that, as you said, the principle over to right. the new covenant that now we know it, we've been given it, it is in our hearts. So now we can live it because we have the responsibility of knowledge. Well, you're, you're going the route that I, because I kind of gave you the answer that I think is true beforehand. <laughs> but if, when you see it in the context, you can, you can see the difficulty, right? Mm-hmm. So I agree with what Katrin's saying, but it's something that we have to work through. In Deuteronomy 30, Moses tells Israel that they have no excuse for, keep, for, for not keeping the commands of the Old Covenant law. And I think this is actually important. Think about what is his point in Deuteronomy 30. It's that you got no excuse. 
you know, you know what the law says. Now you got to keep it. I think that point is critical for understanding probably why Paul keyed in on that text, right? The, the difficulty is he says, he speaks of that text as if it were speaking of Christ and the gospel, right? And that's where we have to understand, okay, well, how does he see that? How, you know, how could that text be speaking of Christ and the gospel when in the original context, it seems so clearly to be speaking of the old covenant law? So you have to realize there's a range of ways people respond to this. You know, you have your liberal scholars who just solve it by saying, well, Paul's just blatantly misusing the text, right? (laughs) He's just using it in a way that's obviously not what the original author intended. And I don't think Paul's an idiot, right? (laughs) It's not like he didn't check the context. Rather, what my experience with Paul is that he understood the Old Testament in ways that I tend to just superficially struggle with at first. And then I, when I start realizing what he's doing, I'm like, oh, wow, wow. Yeah, he had a much more profound understanding than what I do. So I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt that he's not a complete idiot, right? Didn't check the context and just plopped it into the new in a way that's totally misusing the text. Others have said, more conservative scholars said, well, all he's really doing is just using the words of that passage. You know, we do this sometimes. We will use the words of a saying out of context, and but we like the, the wording and we just sort of apply. You know, maybe he was just sort of using the words of that text, but really didn't have its meaning in mind. Okay, well, remotely possible, but probably not true, right? A little more attractive option is, you know, Look back at the first 10 verses. It is very interesting. He says, And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. That's chapter 30, verse 1. Whoa. So Moses, being a prophet, is actually looking into the future, and he sees the writing on the wall, right? He sees Israel is going to disobey the law. And they're going to have all the covenant curses. And they're going to end up in exile. And he's saying, at that point, when all these things have come upon you, verse 2, and you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you, etc., etc. See, the exact previous context is actually a, a redemption oracle about how they were going to break the law, but then God was going to restore them and he was going to make them able to obey it finally, right? And we know what that is, right? That's referring to the new covenant, right? And the, the promises that would ultimately come to pass through Christ when God would give us new hearts, So some scholars have looked at the context and said, ah, see, this is what Paul's doing. He's viewing verses 11 and 12, 13 and 14, as in continuity with that redemption oracle. And he's saying these verses find their ultimate fulfillment in Christ, right? A day when uh, God's people will be able to keep the law 
on the other side of judgment through the redemption that's coming in Christ. So some people have looked at Paul's use and said, he's just seeing, he speaks of it. He refers to it as speaking about Christ because of the context, because the context is looking forward to a day of future redemption when Israel will be able to redeem them. That's attractive. And some scholars that I really respect go that way. But I, when I go back to that text, it just really seems to me like he's, he's bringing it back to the present, Moses is. Saying, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. It seems like, yes, the previous context was a redemption oracle. But now he's sort of coming back to the present and saying, today, you have no excuse. The word, the, the word of the command is given to you. I've given it to you. Now you need to keep it, right? It's not too hard for you. It's not out there. It's, it's right here. So I refer, I think that a slightly more attractive option is simply what I said before, that Moses was, he saw in this text, this Message of Israel, you have no excuse. The revelation has been given to you, right? Uh, I have delivered it to you personally. It's not out there. It's not under the sea. Like you have it in your heart, in your mind. Like you've heard it. Now keep it. And he's saying, ah, yes. And that principle is also true of the gospel. Because if you go back to Romans chapter 10, And you look at what he's saying. He's saying, he's talking about Christ and the word of faith that we proclaim. So he's he's saying, the word of faith that we proclaim. You have no excuse for not believing it, right? It's there. It's available to you. And now speaking to believers, it's, it's in your mouth. It's in your heart, right? And that's going to lead us into the next verses. But so I think he's really just seeing a principle that was true regarding the old covenant that is articulated there in Deuteronomy 30. And he's applying it to the new covenant revelation as well. And he's saying the same thing is true of the new covenant gospel. Okay. I apologize. I'm probably clear as mud this morning. But any, any questions about that? I realize there's still some details regarding the actual text that are still kind of difficult to navigate through. But that's my general take on what he's doing there. I think it's pretty clear. All right. I mean, if you think about it, uh, Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He would know the inside and outside of everything that was taught in the Old Covenant. I agree. And I think it's, it's just helpful. Like, if you think that every time the New Testament writers cite an Old Testament text, they're doing it in the exact same way. And that it's always this straightforward promise fulfillment. It's just not true. And you have to retrain your mind. Like there were actually a number of different ways that the New Testament writers used the Old Testament. And it wasn't always that way. And in fact, I would say if you're keen to it, you can see that even us as preachers, myself, Sam, like we'll refer to the Old Testament in different ways. You know, sometimes we just use the Old Testament wording. Sometimes we'll use this, an Old Testament story as an illustration. Sometimes we'll say, this is fulfilled in that. 
It's not uncommon for that to happen, but you just have to train your mind to realize that not every Old Testament citation in the New is being is using the same exact principles. Yeah. So, Jeremy, when you said that uh, Moses saw the writing on the wall, were you using that as a principle or taking it out of context because the writing on the wall had not taken place yet? <laughs> very, very good. Yeah. Um, isn't that funny? We use that phrase, the writing on the wall, because of that that verse in the Bible. <laughs> but it hadn't happened yet. I don't think Moses had seen that yet. <laughs> but more seriously, I was wondering, this might be a little rabbit trail, but at the end of the last verse in 8, it says that a word of faith, and I know people take that word of faith to mean a variety of things. Can you clarify that? How would you do it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we hear that word today, and it's like, rubs us the wrong way. But I, I really think that he's just, you know, if you take it in the broader context of the book, the word of faith is, you know, goes back to this, right? The righteousness based on faith says, in other words, this is just a reference to the gospel, the gospel of justification by faith, the word of faith, the word that the message that you can be right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. I think it's just a shorthand way of referring to the gospel. Because especially since he says that we proclaim. Well, what were the apostles like Paul going around proclaiming? The gospel, right? Yeah. Uh, what is it? Uh, Deuteronomy 30, with that verse 11, I think almost is uh, ironic that Moses is saying that because he has spent so many years with them trying to get the Lord's words through to them, right. the covenant and everything, and they, right. it's, yeah, he says it's not too hard for them. Right. But I've just said but, it's impossible, actually. But, <laughs> yeah. I've done it this whole way. Right. I read that and I thought, yeah, I understand what you're saying, but. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 very, it's akin to us as parents, right? Or we, we tell our kids, you know, it's the frust. Yeah, it's like, this is not hard, you know. I said to put your dishes, just put the dishes in the sink. You know, but, but you also know there's another layer to that. It is hard for them because they're sinners and they're kids, right? And I think that's what's going on with Moses. On the one hand, it's not hard. Like, it's right here. Like, you know what God requires. You can do it. Just do it, you know. But on the other hand, he also could say... When all these things come upon you, because I know you are a stiff-necked and rebellious people, and you're going to end up in exile, because you're not going to do it, you know? So I think it's, I think it's along those lines, but that's a, it's a good point. His words almost see both sides. You can yeah. see what, he, what he's trying to tell them, right? but at the same time, you can read that and think, yeah. it's, like, yeah. <laughs> it's going to run off a them like water off a duck. Right. It's just not going right. to comprehend it. Right. And then when you're talking about Romans, like Ben said about um, Paul, right? He's so entrenched in the old covenant, yeah. And now having had his eyes opened by Christ, right. it's like, oh wait a minute, all right? Okay, now all these things that he has learned for all these years, it's sort of falling in place. To what Christ right. is trying to teach right. 
Yeah, Philippians 3 is his own journey. As to the law, as to the righteousness that comes from the law, I was blameless, you know. And he listed all of his qualifications, and he realized. And now I realized all those things that I thought were in my credit column are actually in my loss column. And the only thing I've got in my credit column is Christ, you know, the righteousness which comes through faith in him. Okay, we got to move on here because I am going to do what I do every week and have to rush. Okay, if someone would read verses 9 through 13. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, and the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name, the Lord will be saved. Okay, so uh, just my summary of this. He's explaining how the righteousness based on faith is near you, right? He had quoted Deuteronomy 30 where that was the point. Like, no, it, it's it's here. It's, you know, there's no mystery here. You have no excuse. You have this word of faith that we proclaim to you. How? How is it near you? How is it in your heart and in your mouth, like Moses said? By the way, have you guys ever wondered, like, when you come to Romans 10, 9, and 10, and you're like, you know, it's your VBS verses and everything. But have you ever wondered, like, why does all of a sudden he add, you know, if you confess with your mouth, and believe with your heart, because it sounds like he's adding that in as like a work that you got to do, you know, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. Well, the reason he brings that in is because he's still operating in the previous context on that citation of Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 14. And what does verse 14 say in Deuteronomy 30? The word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. So you can do it. So he's the reason he frames it this way in these verses is because he's keying off of that verse that he's just cited from Deuteronomy 30, which talked about mouth and heart. Now, when he says the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart, this is where I say, I think that he's speaking here to believers who understand that experience. And so even though he's going to frame it as an, if you do this, then He's speaking to Christians in this letter, right, who understand what he's going to be talking about here. So first, because, so this is how the righteousness based on faith is near them. It's in their heart. It's in their mouth. Mouth and heart, again, echoes the word is near you in your mouth and your heart from Deuteronomy 30, 14. Verse 9, that language of confess with your mouth, believe in your heart. Now, This is not a two-stage process for salvation. First, you confess with your mouth. Then, you believe in your heart. And if you do those two things, you're saved, right? No, no, that's not the relationship here. What is confession with your mouth? It's the outward evidence of a heart that's believed, right? In fact, I think it's very clear that Paul, as he does many times in his letters, while he rarely ever cites Jesus' teaching, he often alludes to it. And this is one of those examples where I think he's actually alluding to a very probably well-known 
teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10 is one example of it. It's in the other gospels as well. Everyone who acknowledges me, and the word in Greek is the same Greek word, homologeo, confesses. Everyone, I'll just use the, the lingo so you can see the parallel, right? Everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, you take that verse, it's like, there's no such thing as an anonymous Christian who believed in their heart but is unwilling to tell anyone about it. What he's saying is, if you don't, if you're not willing to confess me before men, that means you haven't truly believed, right? That's why I will deny you before my father, right? So confession of faith is a a necessary outflow or evidence of true saving faith. If you have truly believed in your heart, you will confess it. Now, I'm not saying that there are not certain instances in which a person might not confess it, uh, that they're a Christian outwardly. I'm, I'm sure there are, for, there are times of backsliding, for instance, and moments of weakness under persecution. But I'm just saying as a general rule, Jesus is saying, there's no such thing as an anonymous Christian. If you believed in me, you begin confessing it. You will profess your faith. That's not to say that every profession of faith reflects true saving faith in the heart. But the point is that you ain't going to have true saving faith and then deny him before men, right? So I think that's the point here. If he, he's not saying that there's a two-step process. He's saying true saving faith will manifest itself with outward confession. And then he's connecting that back in with Deuteronomy 30 verse 14 where it says that the word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart, right? He's saying, you, you Christians, you know that. If you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth, heart, mouth, it's true of you. The word is near you. It's in your heart. It's in your mouth. You believe it. You confess it. But his point here in verses 9 and 10 Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and saved. That's a sort of Hebraism, a parallelism that reflects the way that you would talk in the Hebrew Bible where basically the two things um, go together. They're parallel, the same same thing. Again, it's not a two-stage process here, right? Um, And he's basically saying the righteousness based on faith that he had mentioned in verse 6 is near you because you, Christians, were justified or saved, to use the language here, right? Saved when you believed the gospel. And notice that the gospel is summarized here, again, by shorthand. In verse 8, he summarized it as the word of faith. Here, he summarizes the gospel by the phrase, Jesus is Lord, or by the phrase, God raised him from the dead. That's not to say there's no other elements of the gospel. It's just saying these are shorthand ways of referring to the gospel, right? The lordship of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. But essentially, the point is, when you believed the gospel in your heart and showed your faith by confessing it with your mouth, you were saved. Right? Now, he's not denying that you're saved by your faith, but he's just saying that if you were saved by your faith, you will show it by confessing it with your mouth. So that, that word of faith, that gospel is in your heart and in your mouth.
And so he's thereby establishing the nearness of the word of faith. And then finally, verses 11 through 13, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. So here it's somewhat simple. It's longer, but it's somewhat simple. He cites two passages, Isaiah 28, verse 16, which by the way, you can imagine, like he probably had his Bible open, right? Or his scroll unrolled. <laughs> he had already cited this passage back in chapter 9, verse 33. So, you know, well, yeah, let's use you know the second part of this verse here, right? Isaiah 28, 16, which says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And he cites Joel 2, 31, a clear you know, messianic redemption oracle, which says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So you remember in that day, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, etc., etc. And then he says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved in that day at that time. Right? So he's citing these two texts to confirm that people are saved or justified by faith. Uh, and to clarify that this doesn't just apply to the Jews, but as he had already made the point, it also applies without distinction to both Jew and Greek, right? So this is a, you know, he's, remember what he's doing, he's establishing that principle that the word of faith, the gospel that we proclaim, it's near you. You've got no excuse. It's available. It's in our hearts. It's on our lips, it's available to everyone. Everyone who believes will be saved. Okay? Now let's go to verses 14 through 17. And I'll read this. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? Never heard. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Okay. What's he doing here? He's establishing in these verses that people are saved by faith in the gospel. And he's pointing out or having, having already established that people are saved by faith in the gospel, he points out in these verses that people can't believe the gospel without someone going and preaching it to them, right? So he's following up. If what we have said is true about being saved by faith, well, then you can't have faith in the gospel unless someone goes and preaches it to you. That's his main point here. In verses 14 through 15, I, I love this quote by a commentator. He says, Paul creates a connected chain of steps that must be followed if a person is to be saved. And you can see the chain, right? To call on him, that is the Lord Jesus, people, they must have believed in him. To believe in him, they must have heard of him. To hear of him requires someone preaching it to them. And to preach to them, preachers must be sent to them. And then he points out, this is what Isaiah 52, 7 said. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. There are the preachers predicted in Isaiah 52. By the way, Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53, a redemption oracle, an oracle about the coming of the servant of the Lord, etc. 
So he's, that text anticipated gospel preachers, right? So in some ways, very simple. Verse 16, notice he, it's like a parenthetical comment here, he says. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? When he says they there, I don't think he's talking about all people. As the context goes on, you see that when he talks about unbelief, he's focusing in, again, the theme of the whole section on the unbelief of the Jewish people. So I think he's returning to his theme of explaining Jewish unbelief. They, in other words, equals the Jews. The reason most Jews haven't been saved is that they have refused to believe it when they heard it preached. And then he points out, sadly, that was predicted, right? In Isaiah 53, verse 1. Isaiah 53, that great oracle about the Messiah, begins with this sober note. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the armor of the Lord been revealed? So this great suffering servant would come and the people of God would not believe in him. And so he says... They, the Jews, have not all obeyed the gospel, and that was sadly predicted in the Old Testament. And then finally, you come to verse 17, and it's like he circles back around, and he summarizes the the chain of steps that he just laid out in verses 14 to 15, but he intentionally ends it with the hearing step. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, and that leads you into verse 18. But I ask, and you can see that now he's going back to that overarching theme of how, why so many Jews have not received the salvation proclaimed in the gospel. But I ask, have they not heard? So again, I think he's speaking of Jews here, but indeed they have. For for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation with a foolish nation. I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So here... Following on verse 16, where he brought up Jewish unbelief, he's establishing further reasons why the Jews had no excuse for not believing the gospel. So this is tying into that theme from Deuteronomy 30 that the revelation is there. There's no excuse. Like It's there. It's available to believe. But the Jews did not believe. And he says, why? Why did they not believe? Was it because... They had not heard the gospel. And then he says, indeed they have. And then he cites, and this is where the other extremely difficult, (laughs) extremely difficult citation of the Old Testament, because he cites Psalm 19.4. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But you know enough about Psalm 19 to know is the psalmist in Psalm 19 talking about The gospel going to the Jews? No, it's, yeah, the heavens declare the glory of God. The earth declares his handiwork. Their voice has gone out. 
It's a, a psalm about God's general revelation to all in the created universe. Paul cites it here as if it established that the Jews have indeed heard the gospel. It's a strange citation in some ways. But here's what I think is going on. I think he's simply using that Psalm 19 and the, the pervasive, the, the language about pervasive revelation, how the voice of God through his creation goes out to all the earth. And he's saying, the unbelief of the Jews is not, it was not explained by ignorance. It's not like they haven't heard because the gospel witness to the Jews has been about as pervasive as the witness of God in nature. And then he cites Psalm 19.4. That's what I think he's doing there. Then in verses 19 through 20, but I ask, did Israel not understand? In other words, was it that they, okay, they heard it, but did they understand it? Could their lack of belief be because they were confused, because they didn't really understand what they were hearing? And he says, no, no. And then he cites two verses, Deuteronomy 32, 21 and Isaiah 65, 1, both of which, when you look at them in the context, God is saying to Israel, because you have rejected me for idols. In other words, this is not like we're confused. This is a willful rejection of God and exchanging him for idols. He says, because you did that, I'm going to make you jealous with another by turning to another nation, right? In 32. And then in Isaiah 65, that opens by saying, I have been found by those who did not seek me. And again, another reference to the Gentiles. So he's basically saying, no, it's not that they didn't understand. It's that they willfully rejected God. That's why they have not been saved. And that's why God has turned to the Gentiles. To make them jealous with a people that, with another nation, right? They rejected me for idols. I'm going to give my salvation to another nation. And then he quotes the next verse in Isaiah 65 says, with respect to Israel, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. In other words, God has, it's not like Israel hasn't had opportunity. It's not like they didn't hear. It's not like they didn't understand. God has continually offered Israel every opportunity to be saved, but they have been disobedient and contrary. They have persistently refused to receive the gospel the, that I have offered, the blessings that I have offered, right? Okay, let's go to the, the application here. What can we learn from this? First, I don't know about you, but when I read this, it's like, it, it reminds us that Israel had this great privilege, right, of having the gospel revealed to them in abundance. And you, you, you say, well, but Jeremy, how did they have the gospel? Well, the entire Old Testament revelation was pointing to Christ. All the types and shadows, the priest, the sacrifice, they had all the prophets, all the prophecies, which you know, gave them more and more light. The, the nations didn't have all this. They had all of that. And then... Jesus was born in their midst, the Messiah. He preached to them with miracles, and then the apostles did the same thing. So 
they had every opportunity. All the nations around them had no access to these things. When you see that that's sort of the force of what Paul is saying, when all is said and done and all the confusion of like how he's using different texts, he's saying they had no excuse. They heard the gospel clearly. And then you realize we have heard the gospel. It's like God in the mystery of his providence, you know, when they rejected him, he turned to the nations and not, not everyone in the nations heard him. You know, many people live their whole life and never hear the gospel. We have, we've heard it. It just should just give us a sense of privilege. And also it reminds us of the necessity of evangelism and missions, right? So some people have been apt to say, you know, people don't really need to hear the gospel to be saved as long as they just sincerely follow the little, whatever light they have, they can be saved through that. So it could be Islam, it could be Buddhism, it could be, you know, animistic religions where they worship the great spirit. However, whatever revelation they have, you know, they just follow it. They're good. But, you know, Paul says that's not true without hearing. So he's talking about, he's talking about the Jews, obviously, in the immediate context, but the principle applies this is what drives missions. This is what drives evangelism. If, if people don't hear the gospel, in other words, uh, then they can't be saved. And if we don't go and tell it to them, they can't hear it. Third, it makes clear that God's unconditional election of some people and not others, like what we talked about in chapter 9, in no way negates man's responsibility to believe the gospel when he hears it. So you have this apparent tension between God, you know, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and over here saying, I held out my hands all day long to a disobedient, obstinate people. It seems like a tension, right? It's in our minds. But what we need to affirm is that, no, God, like God is sovereign over who gets saved. But he, but man is responsible to receive the gospel when they hear it, right? And both are true. And you can't just say because God's election is true, that means man is off the hook. They can't be responsible for it. No, this chapter shows you absolutely. <laughs> We're responsible to tell it to them and they're responsible to receive it. And then also those like Israel who hear the gospel have no excuse for not believing it. This is a really sober thing to think about, isn't it? Because guess what? Like most of us and our families have grown up in this swimming in the gospel, you know, where a lot of people don't ever get to hear it. And so it's a sober reminder that those who have the privilege of hearing the gospel have the responsibility. They don't have any excuse, you know, for not believing it. And then Israel's example reminds us of the hardness of the human heart and the need for regeneration to believe the gospel. This is why when we think of our own salvation, we say glory to God, because I wouldn't have accepted it on my own. And it makes us pray. Pray for our kids, pray for our neighbors and friends, because we know unless God opens their hearts, they'll be like Israel, a, a, a disobedient and contrary people. And then also it humbles us to think this text, the reminder that our faith was a gracious gift of God, that God has given us faith. Um, what Israel, what so many Jews did not have, God has given it to us in his mercy. Okay. Let's uh, end there and uh, let me pray. And then you can come and talk with me about Psalm 19 if you want or anything else. Father, we thank you for 
this passage, Lord, as we study Romans together, we just pray that you would instruct us and help us to understand this text, this great book, and these difficult passages that require thought and careful study. We just pray that you give us wisdom. If there's anything that I've said or taught that isn't accurate, Lord, let it just fall to the ground and have no effect. But Lord, if... but. Lord, to the degree that we've rightly understood that we pray that this the words would sink into our heart and impact our lives. And uh, we thank you. We thank you for the faith that you've given us and the gospel, for the gospel that we've heard and the faith that you've given us to believe it. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.